This is Keep Up. I'm your host, Cynthia Dill. It's Friday, September 23rd, 2022, and I'm in my Portland, Maine studio. This week's guest is Maine political legend Matt Dunlap from Old Town, a Democrat in Maine's 47th and 49th Secretary of State, state auditor for a minute, and former member of the Maine House. Matt Dunlap joins me by phone. Welcome, Matt Dunlap. Well, thank you for having me, Cynthia. First off, congratulations are in order. Since the last time we spoke, you have taken the state auditor's final credentialing exam and passed. That's fabulous. Yeah, it was quite a it was quite a journey. Um, I have learned so much that I never thought I'd even some, some stuff I'd never even heard of, and now I actually am kind of fluent in it. It's kind of it's it's really amazing work, and I'm glad to have gotten through that whole arduous exam process. So thank you very much. And for listeners who may not know, the state auditor's position comes up for election, and it's the House of Representatives that elects the state auditor are you would you like to make news on this podcast and announce your candidacy for state auditor well um i have a couple irons in the fire and i'm doing the work um if the timing is right then yeah i will certainly run again um it's uh, i love the office i work in i love the people i'm with it's a totally different world than anything i've ever been a part of before but also i kind of wish i'd done this a long time ago because i've learned uh, I've, I've gained so much of a greater understanding about how state government works. This is the work we do, you know, so it's uh, it's been really gratifying to be a part of it. And yeah, I certainly would love to stay. So, uh, Matt, you got your degree, I believe, um, from the University of Maine, English and then Roman history. Or do you regret getting that and, and wish that you had got dove right into auditing? No, I don't. I don't think I would have done it any differently. No, Good. I don't think you'd be as you wouldn't be as colorful a person. I don't think. No, no. I, I've done a lot of different things. Um, sometimes just because I needed a job and I had to pay rent, you know. And, and sort of similar to my adventure in state audit, you know, my first cooking job. I was a I was in commercial food service for twenty years, and the first time I got a cooking job, the guy said, "Well, I have one job left. I need to cook. Can you cook?" I said, "Shoot, yeah, I can cook." <laughs> I had to learn very quickly how to cook. But it was a great trade. I was, you know, happy to be a part of it, and I still do a lot of cooking. But, uh, you know, that's sort of what I went into when I became auditor. Is like, you know, now I have to learn. And uh, as we've already discussed on this podcast before, there's a few bumps on the road there. But even when I became Secretary of State, I mean, what I knew about motor vehicles is that I had a plate on my truck and a driver's license in my wallet. What I knew about elections is that I've been elected a couple of times. You know? So there's a lot to learn there. And I've been very, very lucky in that I've been able to learn these things and been surrounded by really smart people who helped me along. Now, is there any competition that you're aware of? Anyone else eyeing up the seat? No, I haven't heard of anything. You know, I'm sure that if there's people who are qualified and interested, they may put themselves forward, but I'm not going to worry about that at this point. So the... Um your wife, uh, Representative Michelle Dunphy, is the House Majority Leader. And do, are things, I mean, you must be the v- literal fly on the wall to a lot of conversations. Are things looking good for Democrats in the House races? I haven't heard much. Well, and that's because nobody really knows. And the reason for that is actually because we're just coming out of redistricting. So all the legislative districts are brand new. Some of them didn't change very much. Some changed a great deal. And because when you get to the legislative level of things, 
there's really not a lot of polling that's done. And as we've seen, a lot of polling that's done isn't terribly reliable anyway. So um, we know that people are working really hard. Uh, the wind kind of shifted a little bit this summer with the Dobbs decision. Oh, right, um, yeah. You know, sort of anecdotally what we hear is that, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, choice issues, they really get pretty agitated about it. So I think that's changed some of the energy in the campaign cycle. And I think, I don't want to make any predictions, but I, I don't think it's going to be as bad as it could have been in a, in a midterm election for the president. You know, if you go back to 2010, Obama's midterm, and we went into that election with 95 seats in the House and 20 out of 35 in the Senate, and it was an absolute bloodbath at the end. I think we were down to, you know, 72 out of 151 and, and 14 out of 35, and then we had Governor LePage. So don't see any type of a tectonic shift like that, but you also don't ever really know because there isn't the polling and all you know is what you hear. So Now, just thinking about other elections as, as important as the state auditor election is, thinking about the gubernatorial race, I read in the paper that there's going to be a series of debates, which is good. I haven't been the object of really any um, campaigning to speak of. Have you? Is there a lot going on up in the second congressional district with respect to campaigning? Well, we're starting to see a few signs out. Um, you know, I, I get some of the email blasts, um, but other than that, haven't it's been pretty? It's been pretty toned down. But that's true across the ticket. It's been true in the congressional race, too. I haven't seen a lot of lawn signs. Usually by now you start seeing them pop up. I've seen a few around town, but very little in, like, the right-of-ways. Not that lawn signs are any indication of energy, you know. But it does seem uh, the focus of the election cycle does seem to be very national and national trends and very much less on of the district focus and that's true of the congressional districts it's true of really the governor's race I mean, although you know we certainly know the candidates very well by now uh there's governor lepage is in for eight years and governor mills is you know finishing up her first term and she was a attorney general for quite a while before uh she was governor so oh and don't forget um, sam hunkler and, well, and Sam Hunkler, Who? Not, yeah, he's not raising any money, and uh, but still seems to have his name out there. So we'll see if that's. A, I don't. I don't really. Don't really think he's going to be much of a factor in this race. Who knows? Now, are people talking like in hushed tones uh, in your circles about like rank choice voting and Elliot Cutler and how maybe rank choice now has particular rank to it? it Elliot Cutler, I guess, was a spoiler, and now he's been accused of possession of child pornography, and we're not really talking about it too much. But I don't know, is ranked choice voting still as popular in the 2nd Congressional District now that we see it doesn't really, there's still possible spoilers, and there's sort of this gross association with Elliot Cutler? Well, you know, ranked choice voting, of course, is very complicated because of the legal framework that surrounds it. Um, you know, we can't use it in the general election on the state level. We can only use it for federal races in November, and we can use it for primaries. So ranked choice voting won't be a factor in the governor's race. It could be a factor in the in the congressional race, the second CD race, which is a three-way race. And it certainly was a factor uh, the first year that we deployed it in 2018, general election, when, if you remember, 
uh, Bruce Politan was leading by 2,000 votes on election night. But when we did the sorting, um, and Tiffany Bond and Will Hoare were eliminated in the in batch elimination in the first round, the operative question out of their 20-some-odd thousand votes that they, that they garnered collectively, how many of those voters actually ranked choices, and how many just cast protest votes? Um, and as it turned out, about half ranked, and two to one, they ranked Jared Golden as their second choice. So he wound up winning by about 3,000 votes, much to the consternation of former Congressman Poliquin. And I think you know, that, that's also been a recent phenomenon in Alaska. Alaska has just implemented it. They saw something similar happen there. And really, I think Democrats um, who were really pushing ranked choice voting, not uniformly, not every Democrat loved it, but in the legislature, it seemed to come down along that line. It was the Democrats and the Republicans, and certainly Governor LePage hated it. Uh, the House Republicans hated it, and so did the Senate Republicans. Um, but and I think, really, if, the, if our Republican friends and these things do cycle through, you know, the time that they take a majority in the legislature and have control of the Blaine House, um, if they have not won an election using ranked choice voting the way the Democrats have, I think LD1 will be to repeal ranked choice voting. So nobody's really talking about it. I think people have seen it ha- play out a couple of times, and I think people are kind of used to the idea of it. It's certainly not hard to figure out if you're a voter. Um, so all else being equal should stick around. But again, there's that factor of, of Republican angst about it. Uh, it's fascinating for me to, to watch the gubernatorial race in the 2nd Congressional District because, you know, as we know, um, Donald Trump won his electoral vote there. Uh, and yet Janet Mills recently got the A-plus or whatever the top rank from the Sportsman Alliance of Maine that I know you are, you know, closely affiliated with. And it seems like she, I, I, it's, uh, LePage's association with Trump now could kind of go either way. Do you have a sense of whether or not LePage is as strong a political figure as he once was? Well, you mentioned Elliot Cutler. And I think, you know, Elliot Cutler was truly a factor um, certainly in 2010, there's a lot of PhDs in political science that have yet to be granted based on that election cycle. But, you know, the 2014 cycle, when you look at the results, it's absolutely mathematical. Everywhere Elliot Cutler did okay, he was pulling votes away from Congressman Mishu. And he his, his vote totals only came up to about 8%, but it was enough for LePage to get the plurality. LePage's base has nowhere else to go. So he, he will always pull somewhere between 40 and 45% anyway. But it's getting over that, that last hurdle, that last, you know, 11, 6 to 11% to get to 51, 6% plus 1. That's where he really struggles because he doesn't have that broader uh, sort of appeal. But, you know, when you get into the question about, you know, spoilers and whatnot, um, there really isn't one this year. I mean, and, and I think, you know, with all due respect to our our physician down east, uh, I mean, he's not raising money. He's not really campaigning. So Elliot Cutler had a lot of money. He was able to deliver uh, a very strong message, a very articulate message, which was very attractive to moderates and moderate progressives. And that really split the votes, um, which is actually sort of 
the, where the origin of the conversation about ranked choice voting in the first place, because we've been talking about this for 20 years before the referendum ever came out. And a lot of states have different runoff mechanisms. Um, ranked choice voting was seen as a cheaper way to do it because you have all the same voters with the same ballots. They don't have to come back and vote again like they do in Louisiana, for example. Um, so I, I, I don't think that the spoiler effect is going to have that same uh, impact that it did in 2010 or 2014, certainly with, with the, uh, the governor's race, for sure. I think if there's a referendum to repeal ranked choice voting, it would win. I think the association with Elliot Cutler gives it a sort of stench that, and more importantly, it doesn't really eliminate the spoiler effect because, as you pointed out, using ranked choice voting, you know, Bruce Poliquin could argue that, that you know, <laughs> Tiffany Bond and Will Hoare were spoilers. And we have to apply, yeah, and we have to do these two two separate systems for the elections. I just think in Maine, I think it, it was like a really kind of sexy, fun idea, but I think it's losing its luster and it might go down in flames. But, it, no, we don't it have could. to, you know. It I mean, I remember when the proponents came to see me as Secretary of State about the, about the mechanism they wanted to put on the ballot. And I had the elections division folks with us, and we kind of looked at them and said, you know, you've got some real problems here because of the constitutional framework around plurality, which all stems from that disputed election in 1879 that almost evolved into violence. And the legislature decided to reform the entire approach and said, you know, first past the post, you know, whoever gets the most votes wins. And that's why we can't use it in the general election. Because, you know, primaries don't exist in the Constitution, and neither do federal elections. And that's why we can use it for the congressional race, but not for gubernatorial. You know, you may be very well right. I, I don't have that sense. I don't sense any antipathy towards it out there among the voters. The people that, you know, when we first implemented it now four years ago, you know, we were gratified when we put out the sample ballots that, we weren't confusing people. People asked really intelligent questions. Do I have to rank or can I just vote for one? Yes, you can just vote for one. So it's been pretty intuitive. You know, I think you know, there's a lot in the future that remains to be seen about you know, what the people decide to do with our election system. You know, do, they, do they amend the Constitution and use ranked choice for everything? Or to your suggestion, do they go to repeal it and get rid of it altogether? We don't know. Do you think Tiffany Bond is, is getting any traction? Do I think Tiffany. Bond is getting any traction? Yeah. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, Tiffany Bond's very smart, um, but I mean, she she's probably in that, you know, in the stratosphere of around five percent. I mean, that's where because you know, she's she's also not waging a very energetic campaign. She's run a couple of times before. I think she she certainly believes in the reasons why she's running, um, but I don't think she has that broader appeal. Independents really struggle unless they have you know, their own source of, of money, like Angus King did. Angus King was a millionaire. I mean, he, he didn't have to raise money. He could write himself a check, as could Elliot Cutler. Um, but coming out of the, you know, you, you lack all that institutional party support. You know, you actually have a whole stable full of, you know, field directors and volunteers who are already ready to go. And you don't have that as an independent. And I think that's a real handicap for a lot of them. Well, Ed, she, I think, is trying to implement a type of fundraising that's very, very challenging to actually do. She wants, instead of sending her money, she wants people who support her to go into another business and spend money there and say that, I'm spending money here to support Tiffany Bond. 
I, I just think that's like you're never going to win an election doing that. No. Well, no. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I didn't raise any money. Ago, when, when you and I were running for Senate, I had a fellow come up to me and said, I think you should sign a pledge that you're not going to raise any money or, or do any fundraising, get money out of politics. And, of course, you know, that was in, the, in that sentiment in the post, um, you know, Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. Um, and when and when Mitt Romney famously said to, you know, a, a person at a, at a rope line, he said, you know, my friends, you know, corporations are people. And that stinks in the nostrils of a lot of folks. But the reality is, if, you know, you are viable, people will manifestly support you with a campaign demo, uh, donation. Um, and the more viable you are, the more money you raise. And, you know, look at look at Sarah Gideon. I mean, she she ran a very attractive campaign and generated something like $116 million, which is just hard to even imagine. Um, of course, a lot of that money came from out of state. It didn't come from Maine voters, and Maine voters thought differently about that election, as we saw. But and most you know, importantly, I mean, the viability piece is whether or not you can actually raise money. And, and, and if you're viable, you raise money. If you're not, you don't. It's and from the bottom line. The, the thing about the Sarah Gideon piece I'm just astounded by is how much money she's left over with. Like, I think it started off when she lost to Susan Collins. It must have been difficult, however, to lose. And she'd never run a national race and had a pretty good run for it. And then let lost with like 14 million in the bank she's given away a lot but still has like over 10 million dollars do you have any thoughts about how that money should be spent not really i mean you know of course she can hang on to it and run another campaign sometime and she's certainly free to do that you can do that with those types of you know national surpluses well, you well know, i hope George Mitchell matt created the mitchell scholarship i hope she doesn't run you for know. state auditor <laughs> well she certainly has the resources <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's the other thing too. I mean, conversely to what we just talked about, yeah, if you're viable, you raise money, but money doesn't necessarily win elections. It's really how you connect with voters. And that's, that is such alchemy socially. It's like, how do you connect with voters? And, and a lot of it's just being the right candidate with the right message in the right place at the right time. And off you go. And, you know, you and I have both been there, you know, when we ran for the legislature, you know, there's something I never had in my head. I was trying to help somebody out with, you know, who had some financial problems. They're a young student going to college, first person in their family to go to college. I was trying to help. And somebody suggested maybe I ask the local state representative, maybe there's some state help. And he and I became good friends and he recruited me to run for the house. It was never in my head to do that. And the timing was right. The state representative was, was not running again. Nobody was really available to do it. And here I, here I am now, 26 years later, um, in a totally different world than I, than I ever imagined I'd be in. And I think that's true with a lot of folks. But yeah, know, it's a real if opportunity. You're determined to get elected to something, there's a lo- it's a long, rocky road because you have to be able to get people to support you. There's no real formula for that. I didn't realize until today that both you and I served in District 121. <laughs> Obviously <Yeah>. in different... <laughs> That's kind of interesting. So, Matt, if I had yep. to guess, if I had to guess, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Queen in light of Queen Elizabeth II's death after 70 years on the throne. Uh, if I had to guess, I'd, I'd call you a monarchist. Are you 
Are you a believer in the Queen? Are you, are you into not the monarchy? Really, not really. I mean, I, um, you know, I think the monarchy is, is, is sort of a medieval construct. And, of course, the way they have it configured in, in, in England, you know, the monarch serves mostly a ceremonial role. Yes, the, you know, King Charles will sign all the enacted laws very much <laughs> kind of like you know, the Speaker of the House does, or, you know, the governor does, although the governor actually acts them. But it's a parliamentary system, and, you know, I mean, it's more tradition than anything. Um, but I think in terms of some of the different systems I've seen, you know, the true parliamentary system like they have in Israel, where you actually, you don't vote for candidates, you vote for a party, and then the party has their slate of people to go to the Knesset if they win however many seats that they win as proportion uh, to the election. I like what we do. I like representative democracy where somebody says, look, this is what I believe in. Can I attract your vote? You know, and, and they say, yeah, I think Cynthia Dill's all right, I'll vote for her. And then you go to Augusta and you do your best. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, it, it, it is fascinating. In fact, I'm going to be doing a... a uh, Penobscot Valley Senior College class. I'm going to teach a class this fall on how government's supposed to work. And one of the things I'm really interested in talking with these folks about, you know, we always talk about the variables. You and I are talking about variables right now. Who's going to win the next election? We talk about the next tax bill or tax reform bill. We don't always talk so much about the constants, and that's also what we're talking about. You talk about the monarchy versus democracy. You know, how did we become a state? Why did we set it up the way we did? And what factors have influenced the changes that have been affected over the last 201 years? Something I've learned a little bit about over the last 25 years, and we're going to have some conversations with some folks over the next six weeks about that. Are you going to give a test? And I think that's really fascinating. Are you going to, like, give a test? The, no, there's not going to be any tests. This is, <laughs> this is uh, you know, the senior college is more exploratory. There's no exams. There's no homework. I think you should give them some of that auditor information, some of that auditor information you have lying around. Give it to, to them to, to read and to bone up on. So, Matt, are you doing any active electioneering at the moment? Are you helping any campaigns or taking – do you have any official positions in any campaigns? No official positions in any campaign. I have talked with a lot of candidates, you know, because one of the things that's not normal, as you know, is – walking up to perfect strangers or calling perfect strangers and asking them to support you. And so I've helped some folks out with strategies around getting that mindset going, uh, going door to door, you know, some of the fundamentals of fundraising, you know, how you sort of get yourself geared up to, to make those calls and, and even the clean election stuff. I mean, it's no easier asking somebody for $5 for a public match on public financing than it is asking for $2,500 for a federal campaign. It's no easier. Psychologically, it's very similar. And yeah, I've learned a lot about that sort of thing. So yeah, I've helped a lot of folks um, get started on that, um, done some door-to-door work myself. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's always much more fun when it's not your campaign. You know? Yeah, right. There's no pressure there. Well, it's so. fun to be involved in politics, I think, in the fall. Uh, so uh, assuming that the um, Democrats, under the leadership of your wife, hopefully, um, win a majority, and you announce publicly, you know, formally that you're in the running for auditor. When does the election take place? Like roughly, how does it work? So, you know, 
uh, leadership elections usually happen shortly after the election. Um, but, you know, that's when you nominate your speaker, you nominate the clerk and assistant clerk, and then you elect your floor leader and assistant floor leader. The state, the other, the constitutional offices, and the auditor is not a constitutional office, it's a statutory office, it does not exist in the Constitution. Someday we probably ought to change that. But the Secretary of State, Attorney General, State Treasurer, and State Auditor are elected by a joint convention of the House and Senate after they get sworn in on swearing-in day, which is the first Wednesday in December. So that's when all those elections take place. So the the uh, election day is November 8th. It's like 47 days away from today. And then when people are obviously already vying for leadership positions, leadership positions being uh, Speaker of the House, House Majority Leader, Minority Leader, etc., when is that how many days usually elapse between the election and when the caucuses decide their leaders? Is it like a week? It's a week or two. Wow. It's usually never more than two weeks. Um, and it's hard, especially for the new people who've now just gone through a grueling campaign cycle. You know, because I can tell you right now, people who are running for the first time, they don't care if they win or lose. They just want it to be over. <laughs> After knocking on thousands of doors and doing local debates and forums and and now, like you say, with 47 days to go, it's like, when does it end? It comes faster than you think. But then after that, the hat drops. You get elected. You're the apparent winner. Um, and your mailbox starts filling up. And the phone just rings off the hook. And now people running for leadership are going to try to lock down their numbers. And it's hard. I mean, my first year as, as a state representative, we had a hotly contested race for speaker. It was Libby Mitchell and Steve Rowe both of whom did serve as speaker, both were brilliant speakers. Steve later became attorney general and Libby uh, was Senate president and was our uh, nominee for governor in 2010. Obviously towering figures, both of them. Um, but uh, try to pick between those. We don't really know much beyond their reputations. Thank um, God it's, it's really a secret ballot. Members. Right? It's, it's, a, a, secret, it's yeah. a secret ballot. Thank God. <laughs> um, so it's... Um, it's pretty tough, and so then they got to start thinking about you know, what committees they want to be on, and, you know where their seat's going to be in the chamber, and try to figure everything out. You know, and then first week in January, they're at it. You know, they're introducing legislation and sitting on committees and contemplating ideas. And they, you know, with term limits, you only have eight years to figure it out, and then after that, you're gone. So well, you either are or you just swap. That's what happens in a lot, like in our area. Rebecca Millette and Ann Carney, they're just going to swap House, yeah. Senate, House, Senate. Well, Matt, I'm pretty confident that, in, you know, unless Sarah Gideon decides to get in the race for state auditor, that you probably have a lock on it. So, you know. Well, we'll see. You know, like I say, the lock, I mean, I have not been able to predict anything that's happened to me over the last two years. So I'm not going to start now. Um, but I've been very, very lucky, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Well, I really appreciate excuse me, you coming on the show, and I hope that you will join the podcast again. Happy to. Okay. Anytime. Thanks, Matt. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care.